yet. Take your seats! Please, God! Back. Please, can we just cut? Can we just cut? I've had just about enough of this nonsense. Good afternoon. And the Oscar goes to Leonardo DiCaprio. You're listening to Classic Movies Live presents Losing It Over Leo, the show about Leonardo DiCaprio, where apparently we just talk about John C. Riley movies, because today we're talking about another John C. Riley movie. Um, I guess before I forget to intro the movie, the movie we're talking about today is Martin Scorsese's 2004 uh, Best Picture nominee, The Aviator. Um, and this, the first, not the first person you see, but like one of the first people you see in this is John C. Riley, who we've seen now three times, right, Pierre? Or is that, or more than that already? Uh, yeah, three times. Gilbert Grape. Uh, gangs of new york and this one so like we can technically look this up but i don't want to let's take bets now how many times do you think we're gonna see john c Riley before the official end of this series and i say official end because we have some plans for how this could continue um well if, as far as i remember i think we have one more scorsese movie left uh, other than wolf of wall street it's the we Departed have two more and wolf of wall street right Yes. Yeah, I know he's not in Wolf of Wall Street, so I, I can't remember if he's in Departed. So I would I, be surprised, but I've been surprised every time. So I'm going to say one because I actually I feel like he's in The Departed in a small role. It just feels odd that he two of these three early Scorsese DiCaprio movies. I just because you said one and I want to be different, I'm going to say two. I'm going to say that before Perfect. the end of this whole thing, we're going to have seen John C. Riley a, a grand total of five times. <laughs> maybe, maybe they reshot some stuff uh, with John C. Riley for Wolf of Wall Street and they rewrote it without us. Can you imagine Martin Scorsese finishes Wolf of Wall Street? He releases it. It gets all <laughs> of the acclaim and he goes, God damn it. We forgot to put in John C. Riley. So he goes back, does a bunch of reshoots. Secretly re-releases it only to Netflix. And no one notices. Because John C. Rowley just fits the Scorsese that well. Man, I think if we ever do another, like, there's a bunch of actors that I would love to do, like, full breakdowns of their career on. I gotta be honest, I'm really tempted to do John C. Riley. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he's a man of very diverse taste. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. and is always kind of... Uh, just a, a nice person in his roles, I think. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen him be like a complete dick in you, right? Uh, not completely, because like Almost. there's, there's Walk Hard, Dewey, the Dewey Cox story where he's an asshole a lot of the time, but also like he's the main character, so he's got a lot of layers because that's a really well written movie. Yeah. I feel like in most roles, or protagonists have to be assholes, at least at first. A lot of, a lot of times. I mean, you can get by with a protagonist that, has no flaws or that that isn't like explicitly outwardly flawed, but they've, there's gotta be something. Otherwise they're just not interested. 
Usually, yeah. Um, and uh, what what is the interesting movie we're talking about? Uh, it's The Aviator. I actually did already say that. Oh, so sorry. Just, just in case. <laughs> right, but I cool. did want to say uh, our flaw today is a actually pretty terrifying depiction of OCD. Um, so this movie is about Howard Hughes, the world-famous uh, aviator. Well, he, he so, like, made airplanes. He was, like, he was probably the closest that America has had to a uh, high-profile billionaire playboy. Yeah. Um, I, I read that uh, it's very likely that Howard Stark from uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe was heavily based on Howard Hughes. I um, believe that is... I, I'm almost certain. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think I also read that, and I'm pretty sure I didn't re- just read that one spot. Like, I don't know if it's ever been officially confirmed, but, like, that's that's who that character sees. Yeah, because uh, Howard... Howard Stark is, I don't know, he flew planes in Captain America, uh, obviously a playboy, um, and also, like, this is a lesser known thing, but I remembered he was in the show Agent Carter, which aired on A for a two, and he was actually getting into film in that show as well. So, oh, cool. Uh, there you go, you kind of hit three for three with, uh, yeah. with that. And, and they really... both had a mustache. Oh yeah, I guess they did. I thought it was really interesting in this how, uh, so Howard Hughes, um, he developed planes. He flew planes. He um, he was mostly involved with planes, but he did a lot of stuff. Like he had uh, he, he had millions of dollars and didn't know what to do with it. So like at one point he just got into movies and he just directed a couple of movies just cause cause why not? And these I haven't seen them, but like uh, they're apparently decent anyway. And actually the movies that he directed were both ground, the ones he directed, cause he only actually directed two, he used a bunch, but the ones that he directed were actually groundbreaking each in their own particular way. Um, the first movie he directs, which is where this movie opens is him on set for it. It's called hell's angels. And from what I've read again, I haven't had the chance to actually watch that movie. Uh, from what I've read, it's a pretty standard, you know, love story during a war or something there's a pilot who falls who you know has a romantic interest and i don't know it just sort of it 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 exists it's a fine it's fine (laughs) but uh however that movie has like plane sequences that took that were shot in ways that nothing had really been shot before and also that actually took them probably three years to film um because they kept redoing it because howard because Howard Hughes wasn't ever, uh, he wasn't satisfied with it. So, like, that kind of revolution, like, he developed planes for that movie and also ended up, like, really pushing the boundaries of what you can do with cinematography, uh, or maybe not cinematography, but anyway, filming uh, with these longer aerial sequences. And then later on, he also directed a movie called The Outlaw, which uh, pushed the boundary of what was allowed to be shown because it was so obscene for the time. Yeah, I, I actually, so going into this, I had no, I, I tried I tried not to look up anything about Howard Hughes. I've always heard of, because uh, my, my dad works, he's uh, very, he told me about um, the Spruce Goose plane, um, which I actually went to see a model of it. And uh, see, I think it was in Washington. I can't remember exactly. Uh, so I, I saw that. So I knew he made that. Um, and, I, and then I also knew, uh, He's, he's actually pretty famous, unfortunately, for like his CD, actually, because um, that would that is also like the only other thing I know about him. Um, but it was a really cool surprise to see him start with with uh, filmmaking. And 
I thought they started it at a good time too because I I realized that after I watched the movie that he had made like three other films before Hell's Angels. Um, but that was I guess Hell's Angels was like the first for him that was like not only successful but like I think showed off his ambition. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a great place to start, and also obviously it linked very well into his uh, fascination of airplanes. But uh, yeah, I I honestly I I feel bad for other like for judging this movie just because like um i don't think it's fair that scorsese got to do a biopic on like honestly he's just an extremely interesting person Mm. it's it's almost like the what whatever biography sasan wrote itself you know um because yeah like it it was very much a an amazing character uh drama that uh leo leo had a big part in like amazing in my eyes yeah he he played that role really well uh this was actually um, actually, I just noticed this. Uh, this was his second Academy Award nomination. Yeah, well-deserved, too. Wait, what was the first one was Gilbert Grape, right? Yes, the first one was okay, Gilbert yeah. Grape. The second one was The Aviator. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised he wasn't nominated for Catch Me. Uh, I, I will say this yeah. performance was better. Definitely. Catch Me If You Can. I'm going to assume he was up against a lot. He would have been up against way better actors or way better performances that year. Of Not course, that he was yeah. bad, but there, I, I don't know what was in that year, I guess. I think Shrek was in that year. Well, I don't think Shrek. That is a true contender, but Mike Myers did not get nominated for Best Actor. That is unfortunate. You know, that's a real big problem with uh, the Academy is that they still to this day will not nominate voice actors. And I guess it's fair because you do lose a lot of uh, you do lose a lot of what you can get from physical acting and stuff. But uh it's also it's also sad that there isn't like an extra category or something to allow people who uh, work in animation to uh, get a little more recognition. Yeah, I agree. I, I do think, though, that like uh, as time goes on, the Academy Awards become less and less relevant to movies, in my opinion, just because like stuff like animated movies um, aren't recognized, even though they in my they're just they're a huge driving force behind the industry and like. Um, but there's just they're not really recognized in their own way other than best animated feature which is is isn't really highly regarded by the academy voters anyways from what i've heard well i think um no definitely not i've seen some emails and it's just it's pretty despicable what some academy voters not all but what some like think of that award but i think that really what comes what it comes down to is that the academy awards shouldn't be the most prestigious uh, awards in film in filmmaking they're mostly just the loudest and also prestigious awards but they're not really but like i don't know the the palm door at con at con will always be in my eyes a much bigger accomplishment than the academy awards even if the academy awards are you know they're nothing to sneeze at either yeah i could see that i, I think with the palm door there's less uh, outside in as well in certain and also cases, the jury but, yeah. for the palm door the the people who vote on the palm door are selected like there's a full application process and there's fewer of them like it's a jury of something like eight filmmakers yeah i think plays a little better a lot better but anyways back back to the aviator the uh, aviator <laughs> uh leo leo yeah i think he uh, was able well i guess with the help of scorsese too i, I thought the the aspect of very well played out um it, it was honestly it was portrayed as like a terrifying experience i i think uh just as I, I guess I like how it was portrayed accurately. I think it was it would have been very easy for um, them to kind of play it off as a quirk or something that helped him become successful. 
mm-hmm. um, which I think in some cases it does because uh, he was a, it, he was a perfectionist, which was definitely a side effect of that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that and they they make they make it pretty clear in the start of the movie that uh, like for example he with the the movie Hell's Angels, even though uh, they had finished filming it, he noticed talking bees were a thing, and he knew his his product wouldn't be as as good as possible and up to date without talking um so so they what they refilm they refilmed all the dialogues or the there's scenes with people in it and it took another year to um mm-hmm. and i that's that's probably one of the reasons why it was highly regarded at the time so, yeah it was, so it was stuff like that and uh but uh, the, the film really does show it it, it, it devolves slow slowly um but it does oh. show in the end that it it's as much a a gift in some ways as a terrible curse and well, I thought that one of the first scenes to really drive that home, and to me, probably the one that sticks with me the most, even though it's not the most extreme, is uh, he meets Errol Flynn early on at a, at a dinner, and he gets his regular at the restaurant that they're at, which is, I don't know exactly what it is, but it looks like it's a steak with like six multivitamin pills or something. Oh, I think they were... <laughs> oh, Okay. Anyway, it's like think, a very yeah. specific number of small circular objects. So maybe they're peas, yeah. And Errol Flynn just like reaches over and grabs one. And immediately, like Howard Hughes sees that and you, you just see his, you just see his entire face flush and just sort of looks at his plate with disgust and has to leave immediately because now he can't, he can't be there anymore. It just, it's just too bad. Yeah. And it wasn't like a very, like, first of all, I thought that was pretty relatively subtle. You know, there was no obvious explanation by him. Like, why did you take my peas or something? It was just all yeah. facial. And it, it also wasn't instant. He was sitting there for a while just contemplating, like, like, is there a way I can fix this? Or, like, is there a way I can just forget about it, you know? Yeah, like, um, the first thing he did was he he dis- or he or got away from the conversation and, like, went into his own head to try and figure out what to do in this situation now. Yeah, and, and watching that in like internal struggle, Leo played that really well. You could see so many different like thoughts just flowing through his head of like like how how like how does he deal with the situation so- socially because it was very obvious he wanted to talk to the, the table. Uh is like does he eat his food? Does he not? Does he want like his OCD or whatever to to take take over in, in that scenario? Uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, very honestly like a really small and subtle scene but really powerful, especially at the start of the movie to kind of set up what happens later. Yeah, because um, it's there's a few moments kind of like that. That's the that's the biggest one that sticks out to me early. But I think there's a few moments where it's showing that like he can only be well, yeah, there, he can only be in certain rooms of his house or like certain the rooms of his house need to be kept to a very specific standard. Um, when he you know he can only. Gosh, I don't know any other example. But he he has all of these different things that he has to follow exactly. Otherwise, he can't even be out in public, basically. Yeah. Uh, there, there was stuff like, I noticed a couple things. Sometimes he'd uh, have to touch. He made a step a couple times. Um, like he was, because uh, I, I know what one do is they need to step on certain tiles to feel good. Uh, if, if they see like a tiled floor so after a couple conversations especially when he's anxious i remember once i think it's he, he taught when he's talking to the senator um and this is after his injury he's talking to the senator and the senator starts threatening him threatening to put him under an investigation uh he he makes like a, a subtle tap on the floor with his foot you don't see it on camera 
um, like where, what, what he's doing with his foot. But it was like, it was like a very subtle thing that kind of adds overall, like, like the score says he didn't feel the need to point out every small little thing, like can't handhold the audience to like showing like all the different uh, problems with the OC. So yeah, little things like that was nice and it definitely um, paid off in the end. Uh, yeah, like Leo, I, I think, like, what, how would you rank this performance with his other? Because I think this might be like my favorite one so far. I would, I was about to say that. I think this okay. like, if, if we're doing the Leo scale, which we'll get, uh, well, we might as well do it now. Like, I think this is a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 Leo scale. I think this is fantastic. Yeah, for sure. Sam, he, he really, this, this is another role. Uh, actually, well, wait, I was going to say, oh yeah. Cause gangs in New York, he did this. I think this is another role like his, where he, he truly, the Leo personality kind of disappears behind the character. Um, and we don't see any of his kind of trademark uh charm that that he seems to give or boyish charm that he seems to have given off in like the past performances. um i really liked this movie i think i might have said it in the last movie that i was expecting that whatever the next movie we would talk we would watch after gangs of new york would be the one where he finally escapes that like boyish charm and that like i'm and, and like that coming of age story and this was not a coming of age story at all like this uh, reminded me, this was a very different character than uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, but it reminded me mm-hmm. quite a bit of that, uh, mostly in that his character was, well, partially at least, in, the, in that his character was extremely self-sufficient the entire time, like he was an adult. He wasn't ever, you know, a kid uh, just having to rely on other people, which I thought was something that, to some degree, has kind of been missing from all of these last movies. Like, even... Um, Probably the closest we've gotten to being to to not having a coming of age story is either Gangs of New York or Catch Me If You Can, and both of those are still coming of age stories essentially. So this was the first one that like wasn't that at all. He's kind of a man. He's he's a man already yeah, in this one. Exactly. He's grown up finally. Uh, it only yeah. took him until he was how old is he? Thirty? Oh, yeah, well, thirty. Yeah. Okay. Uh... But yeah, I, I I don't know what it is with Scorsese, but he seems to be able to to kind of m- mature Leo up. I don't know because I, I also kind of felt it in Gangs of New York, um, but also it was like a, a definitely so he was burdened by that. But I, I I still felt like in these two movies he was like very much like a different actor. Sorry, real uh, quick, Leo was exactly thirty. Oh, perfect, nice. I see. Like I honestly. I couldn't tell because uh, one thing this movie actually does is like his look doesn't actually change that much because I think the span of the movie 10 years, right? I want to say they never explicitly say it. I show the years, but like not really. They mostly show the events because like in the beginning, I remember um, when they were talking about the filming of uh, what was it called of Hell's Angels? It was like Hell's Angels year one, year two, like they're not actually showing the years. So you can infer all of this stuff, like all of these things that they're showing are events that you can find out, but they don't really emphasize, you know, what these actual years are. Yeah, that's true. Okay. But yeah, I, I would guess 10 years, just be- or about 10 years, just given all the work he does. But he like, Leo physically doesn't age that much. It's mostly like his hairstyle changes. Uh, real quick, this has to be at least 20 years, probably about... 25 or 30 yeah 
Well, yeah, there you go. So yeah, I, I did find that a little off-putting um, because they don't really add any wrinkles or anything to them or gray hair. So uh, that was a little odd. But um, Have you seen pictures of Howard Hughes in 1970? He looks he like look a young man. Yeah. Oh, oh, maybe that's why. Well, it's a good thing they picked Leo because <laughs> he looks really young still at the age of 30. Uh, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, no, that's he's in 38. Never mind. I will say, though, that Leo does capture his aging, I think, physically. Um, I, I will say stuff like the he gets into a couple, he gets a couple scars along the way uh physically and mentally so I, I think like through his acting he is able to convey the passage of time very well even though like uh the look of him does not do it as much in my opinion sorry the look of him doesn't convey the passage of time are you saying yeah because like other than his hairstyle i don't i don't think like he looked that different yeah that's um true yeah and in other case like what did you think of the other uh actors such as kate blanchett I really liked her in this. I, um, I, yeah, I thought she did an amazing job. Kate Blanchett plays, uh, Catherine Hepburn, yeah. which, um, I don't know very much about either of the Hepburns, uh, who I believe are not sisters. I think they're cousins or something. But, uh, the other Hepburn that I'd, I'd heard more about was Audrey. I actually didn't know very much about Catherine Hepburn. So pretty much everything I know about Catherine Hepburn comes from, um, but yeah, she was really good. I don't know. I guess she must have been a very assertive personality and really took charge. And Kate Blanchett did a heck of a job with that. Like the first time they meet, she basically like takes charge of everything right away. And Howard Hughes is almost out of his depth with her as soon as they like start playing golf. Um, yeah. Yeah. What do you, what did you think? Um, I, I also, I, I personally really liked her, uh, performance. Uh, I, I don't know the person. I'm guessing it, it did feel like an imit an almost like an imitation performance. Um in that like there was like the, the voice and the mannerisms were so I wanna say cartoony that it felt like an imitation. Um like if I had to think of an example off the top of my head, like did you remember uh Donald Glover in, in solo? Did you solo? I did see solo, yeah. I found his performance was a little like exaggerated in that like it felt like he was just trying to do a copy of Lando Calrissian uh, slash Williams because uh, just just well, because of like he recognizes that this is like uh, an already established uh, personality and and he wants to like give it justice right. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying her performance was bad. It just felt like that because I I don't know what the real Catherine Hepburn was like. Yeah, um, it did feel very played up. Like she had that exaggerated 1920s accent that you hear in you know when people are putting on a 1920s accent. Like I don't think I've ever heard that. Maybe until this movie as something I'm supposed to take seriously. Yeah. And um, she was she talked very fast. Uh, and yeah, she felt like a cartoon and. To some degree, well, she did that extremely well, for one thing. Yes, but also, I, I wonder I wonder about that. Like, I wonder if she's playing it up to that degree because she's playing an actress who was active in the 40s, mostly, mm -hmm. uh, 30s and 40s. And um, Catherine Hepburn was probably among, like, all of... The, she's, she's playing a very stereotypical 20s, 30s, 40s woman. And I have a feeling that Catherine Hepburn is probably complicit in making those stereotypes exist in the first place because she was an actress during that time playing 
the roles that actresses got during that time. So she's probably part of the reason a lot of those, you know, cartoony 1920s, 30s, 40s stereotypes exist. Yeah, that's that's very possible. I uh, I that's the thing, though, is like I can't I can't really judge her performance based off of the 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 care the person or maybe the stereotype because I'm not that familiar with it. Yeah. Uh, but I, either way, I will say her performance was very well done. I thought she captured uh, the kind of balance of this character she's putting on mm-hmm. and um, as a person mixed with like the real one, you know, because that was kind of a theme with her character. Uh, she says she says to Howard Hughes that even though she may act different around other people when she's with Howard, this is like the real Catherine Hepburn. Mm. Uh, even though I'm I'm not how I'm not entirely sure how real how true that becomes in the end. Well, I think so. that a part of it was, and something I kind of got from her character is, it was hard to know if there was a real Catherine Hepburn. She was kind of always putting on some personality, and the one that she had with Howard Hughes was you know, the most human of her personalities and most likely the most real, but also it was still her putting on a performance, essentially. Yeah, and that, I think that kind of plays into the the paranoia of Howard, too, because of, I think because of how successful he was and the world he was in, which he he honestly doesn't seem to like very much because, um, uh, like, the, the celebrity lifestyle. He likes it, but he also hates it. I don't know. Um, and she, this character kind of represents fears in that, or this, I guess, person. Um, Catherine Hepburn in this movie kind of represents his fears of becoming something he's not, uh, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, but it's also might be why he is, he's attracted to her in the first place, because she is able to act distinctly based on who she may spend time with, or at least that's what she says, whereas Howard Hughes is always very um, himself all the time. And, he, and she's yeah. also able to navigate Hollywood uh, because he exists pretty much in Hollywood among the Hollywood people. And while he's very good for the most part at, I mean, he's kind of a quirky guy, but he gets along with them. Um, you know, certain times, like when he has a breakdown, like when he meets Errol Flynn, he doesn't know how to deal with that situation where Catherine Hepburn can very easily navigate out of it. Right. Yeah. Uh so that, that might be why they worked well. It was actually really sad to see them uh, at some point. In, 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 that, that doesn't last the whole movie, their relationship. And it was really sad to see it fall apart. Especially yeah, I, because I, afterwards, and it's very subtle. Well, it's fairly subtle. Afterwards, uh, I mean, none of, none of Howard Hughes' relationships afterwards work out nearly as well as that one. And he gets into... He, he gets involved in Hollywood scandals, which is not something he's ever wanted to be in, obviously, I guess. But you see that, like, that is really not a world that he even cares to belong to later on. And with Catherine Hepburn, that would never have been a problem. Exactly. Uh, I, I I thought it was uh, interesting how, I, I don't know if it was on purpose or not, it might have been just how, after her, his love interests just don't seem that important anymore. Like, they, they, they maintain very little focus in the movie, because uh, Kate, Kate Beckinsale is kind of like the the other big love interest for him in the uh but and she's introduced kind of early on in a very very small scene uh where where she like makes a comment at him and walks away uh but she she comes back later but the thing is like we don't find out how they meet um we don't really see like how they any chemistry they have or like how how they hang out and stuff yeah we don't Um, actually see any of that relationship except for uh the part where she's introduced the scandal that's eventually comes up and then like one or two scenes of them in a room together. 
Yeah, it was very confusing. And I, I didn't, I don't really like it in general, um, just from a movie perspective. But I guess I can see what they were going for in that it's like after, after Hepburn, it was just kind of like, whoever's in his life, he doesn't even really know. It doesn't matter. It's just like, whoever's there. You know? I would say it kind of, it kind of feels to me like something I don't love in a lot of biopics where they were put in there because they were in his life for a significant amount of time. But they don't actually serve the narrative that much. And they serve the narrative as much as Martin Scorsese could make them do that. But they don't really do very much. And so it's almost you kind of wonder why they're in the movie, even though the answer is obvious. The answer is that they were important in his life, but they're not important to the movie. That's true. Yeah. So it's it's hard to tell for me how important Kate Beckinsale's character to his life in check, because I feel like they were building up to something. And maybe her lines were cut. I don't know. It could have been. Uh, Martin Scorsese is notorious for a couple of things, including having really long movies, never having a director's cut, but having original cuts of movies that will never, ever be released that are way longer than the actual cut that comes out. Yeah, unfortunately. It's a shame. But uh, anyways, I, I wasn't too interested in her character anyway, so it wasn't a huge, it wasn't a huge deal. It's probably the only kind of bother I have with it. But yeah, in terms of the other actors, like, I'd say like John C. Riley was nice as like his assistant or not assistant, mm-hmm. but like kind of money manager. Um, and then Alec Baldwin had like a relatively small, but pretty important role as like one of the antagonists uh, mm-hmm. in charge of uh, what's the airline Pan, Pan Pacific Pan Am. Pan, Pan, Am. Am. Pan Am Airlines. Yeah. Uh, because Howard Hughes, uh, he eventually dr- buys, what's it called? TWA. I think he buys an airline and he decides that he wants to do international flight. Well, Pan Am also decided that, but Pan Am is lobbying the government for a uh, for a monopoly on international flights. And that becomes the entire conflict of the second half of the movie, pretty much. Yeah, uh, and uh, I think it was really nice to have Baldwin play it. I don't know why, but he kind of... It might be because I've been watching 30 Rock recently. He really reflects like the power... Of like uh, the stereotypical businessman. I think um, Alec Baldwin is really good at coming across as sinister, but not like evil. So he's a, yeah. he's, a he's the bad guy in this movie. He's the antagonist, and he always comes across as like manipulative and conniving, but he never comes across as like a villain. I mean, he is the yeah. villain in this movie, but he's not like it's not outright like oh he's the bad guy. The closest he gets to a really imposing stereotypical villain scene is the scene where he's introduced and then he like goes over to his globe and spins the globe while he's polishing the globe, (laughs) which is kind of a funny cartoony scene, but that's the closest he gets to being like more of a stereotype than a person. Yeah. uh, Maybe the scene when he's smoking that cigar and uh, puffing it into the room that, uh, okay. I guess like for for that was really subtle. Kind of a, for Alec Baldwin, he kind of plays it up a lot and he kind of hams it up in this movie. But like, I want to stress that hamming it up for Alec Baldwin is not dick dastardly levels of villainy. Yeah, I, I just he's really good at like these smaller roles, too. I always like having it. Like, I thought, well, we still have to see The Departed, but I loved his role in The Departed, though it also was huge from what I remember. Um, and then I, I would almost compare this role to uh, the one he has in this movie to uh, him in uh, what's that movie where he's the businessman and he says always be selling or always what's the ABC 
Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Calling. Yes, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which he was amazing in. And he, he kind of plays a similar role. And he's just a, he's not necessarily a bad guy, but he's just a, yeah. he'll do what it, you know, he, nothing's personal, but he'll do what it takes to be on top. So uh, yeah, he had a nice role. I can't really think of anyone else. Um, I really liked, uh, because in the end, this really was uh, Leo's movie. A lot of the focus was on him. Say I was really fair. happy to see uh, Willem Dafoe and Adam Scott and Jude oh, Law, but none yeah. of the three did that much. Adam Scott actually had a surprisingly big role, considering his role was still very minor. Yeah, dude, Willem Dafoe—he was literally in like thirty seconds of one scene. I, I couldn't was, believe I, it. I was pretty surprised to see him. He was there as a private eye, which is a very Willem Dafoe role, and like being bribed by Howard Hughes, which is a very Willem Dafoe, Willem Dafoe thing to be doing. <laughs> uh, but also like, man, I don't even know. There, his, his scene was honestly confusing. It was. I, from what I, I read about it later, I was supposed to, he, I think he worked for the press. Oh, no, no. He was going to sell pictures to the press of uh, Catherine Hepburn, a new guy. And, right. and I think it was Howard, Howard Hughes didn't want it to leave because he was trying to protect her. He wanted um, to kill the story. Yeah. Well, yeah, at the time, but I would expect when I see him in the credits, I'd expect him in a bigger, you know, but it's kind of cool how Scorsese can take these like pretty, pretty successful and good actor and literally just pluck them into like a tiny role that doesn't really have much consequence. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, uh, and we'll get, we'll, we'll talk about it more when we talk about The Wolf of Wall Street. Matthew McConaughey being in literally one scene of The Wolf of Wall Street. Exactly. Yeah, stuff like that. It just kind of shows the, the pulse course he has. And anyone will take a role from him. Um, yeah, overall, like, I, in terms of directing, like, it, it feels very Scorsese and that, like, it was a life. Like, I, he seems to like doing biopics, you know? Um, yeah. At least in this period of his life. And I feel like his uh, his approach to biopics is very... It's hard to say because you definitely notice when you're watching a Scorsese biopic, but it's not exactly clear why. Like, I couldn't tell you the specific elements that are Scorsese, but I could also say, like, watch this and then go and watch, I don't know, some other... What's another biopic? Catch me if you can. You can tell which one is Scorsese. Yeah, uh... Well, yeah, I, I definitely say with Catch Me, it also because it feels so Spielbergy. Well, that's that true. Tell so the like difference. That's, yeah, um, but I, I, I'd say it's mostly the I, in terms of it's like the pacing and the the length. You know, hmm. um, I, I feel like Catch Me If You Can was uh, about as long, or I, I, I think actually no, it was like twenty minutes. This was a pretty long movie. This movie's really long, almost three hours. Uh, but in terms of like. Like, uh, you, you definitely do feel the passage of time in a Scorsese biopic in that he, mm. he covers a lot of time, but he doesn't do it quickly. Uh, because no, Catherine, also, if you can, kind of feels like a movie that could have happened in, like, the span of like, a year. But yeah. it ended up being, like, five years. Cause, just because of, like, the really quick, never-ending pace of what's happening. But, like, something about the pacing is different with these movies. Well, I mean, obviously, that's what you've been talking about. But something about the pacing is different. But I find that this movie felt like it was quicker paced than catch me if you can both of them were paced like i've said like i said with catch me if you can appropriately but this one felt like this one kept me a little more engaged going through and as a result kind of felt like i knew the length but i didn't feel the length as much as with catch me if you can um that's fair 
I don't know why though. Because I, I honestly like this is hard to say. I I want to say that the type of people like the the that they're they're taking they're taking on is like just feels vastly different. Like like uh and and it, it kind of affects the feel too and and like how they handle the pacing. Because Catch Me If You Can is like they're dealing with like a kid, like a hyperactive kid, you know. Yeah. Um. That's that can't wait to like kind of go to the next thing, and he's playing around. He's life is like a game to him in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in this movie, it's it's like this is a this is a man that's like the entire time he's kind of burdened by um his, the goals in life that he wants, uh, and all of them long time. Yeah, and you feel that you know. Yeah. Uh, because the whole the whole process of building Hell's Angel, um, and setting up like his kind of first big success that was that was like. How long was that? Was that like 40 minutes? I don't know. It felt it like a long been. time, though. It was a pretty significant part of the movie. Yeah. And even though, like, I don't think it, it actually has that much of an effect on the overall plotting of it, it, it's given a lot of focus, and it really takes its time there. Uh, not not just because, like, like, it, like it, it's just, like, it was interesting to look at, and, and it wasn't, like, necessarily all for uh, making the script build onto itself, you know? Um, mm-hmm. It was just kind of like taking its time to enjoy, uh, kind of like and it's like enjoy the person Howard Hughes and kind of set up his his character because um, it's not only about like him getting his first success. It it has to highlight like his rebelliousness to like the system, you know, or not the system, but like the establishment, you know. Yeah. Um, his ambitiousness, uh, his securities when it comes to uh what he's doing and himself um and also yeah his uh, perfectionism so yeah but like that that is a that is a good point i there's i think there's a lot more that go that scorsese does to make his biopics truly feel like a biopic yeah i i've never i, I haven't been disciplined because like thinking of this and wolf of wall street especially with how different they are too just in terms of tone uh but they both they both are very long and they both feel similar in terms of pacing yet match the character uh, it might just be that I'm, I'm gonna try and compare scorsese and spielberg here again so like in catch me if you can leonardo dicaprio is playing a larger than life character in this movie uh in in the aviator leonardo dicaprio is once again playing a larger than life character but when i see the aviator Howard Hughes feels like a guy who's so so accomplished and so such a bombastic character that he couldn't possibly exist. And meanwhile, without feeling like he's any less of a character, whereas in um, in Catch Me If You Can, Leonardo DiCaprio DiCaprio's character feels very down to earth and human. So like you hardly even notice that this is a guy that couldn't exist or that that that's larger than life because he's portrayed very realistically where howard Hughes portrayed almost like heroically like i don't know i was gonna say this earlier i don't know how great of a person howard hughes actually was but according to martin scorsese he was the greatest american who ever lived yeah that that's a good point it it feels like an epic you know Mm -hmm. even though i guess the the content itself is simple yeah in that they're just kind of tracing this man's life um but yeah but like, in terms of like story like i don't know how much like like i said at the start it's hard for me to say like oscar says he's a g he pulls it off again because like a lot of these things are just kind of like directly taken from his life you know yeah um especially because like especially because it is uh how do i say uh, whatever um but like I, I guess like visualizing it and stuff was was cool and he also rearranged some things um 
because uh, towards the end of the second act, I would say uh, he takes the because it it's it's widely known or it's talked about a lot that uh, Howard Hughes locked himself in that theater for what, four months. Something um, like that. Uh, that actually happens uh, in real life. That happened after the, the consult consultation slash investigation with the Senate, not not before. Um, so he takes a couple things and shifts them around and. He had to he had to ignore a few things too, just in terms of like getting the most important things and making a cohesive story. And uh, and I, I, he did a good job of that, right? But like it, it kind of because it's a biography, it also kind of gets some slack in terms of they like the movie doesn't really get a full ending, in my opinion. Um, it, it's it's kind of like it, it's like kind of played as this was his last victory or big thing. Um, mm-hmm. And that, like, the climax was him flying the spruce, the spruce goose, so-called uh, uh, airplane, which was one of his biggest goals to do, and that a lot of people said he couldn't do. Yeah, the uh, spruce goose. If people want to know the alternate name for it, is the H four Hercules, the biggest plane at the time ever uh, ever made. Yeah. Uh, so the kind of the way they end the movie, though, is is it's like a temporary victory, you know? Um, yeah. Because then his you see his OCD flaring up again after it feels like he recovered from it mm-hmm. at least partially. Um, it, it's coming back again, and it seems to be getting worse in terms of. I, I felt like it implied he was seeing things at the end, or, um, or or his paranoia of people in general just raised drastically. I would not be able to comment on that. Do you not remember that scene, or are you just like? No, I, I remember that scene. I don't know oh, okay. if that's what that was implying. Oh, okay, cool. Um, he was also just put into a weird situation. Because in the very end of the movie, there's four people in suits that are walking towards him, like very ominously. And it does seem really surreal. Like it's out of, it, it almost seems like he's seeing like men in black or something. But so maybe that could imply that he's seeing things. But also there is clearly something there because he asks other people and they can see the, he, he asks his advisors that are around him and they can see these people too. And then eventually, you know, when they take him away from that situation, they're also looking at these people that are coming at them. So maybe he's seeing stuff, but I didn't really get that impression. Um, I, I kind of went when when his advisor or whatever, what their whatever their roles were, when they mentioned because, they, yeah, they say the words every Howard Hughes says, do they work for me? And then they say everyone works for you. I took it as more like they were like, whoever he's looking at is someone in this room and everyone's there for him. anyway. so. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that makes- either way, uh, I think it it does show you he, he was he was really scared for his life, whether they were real. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, but just overall, like I, I would say this is like one of my favorite movies. Again, like I think it's mostly just because of Howard Hughes, an amazing figure uh, and fascinating person. Uh, but I I gotta give props to to Leo and Scorsese for for pulling it off because uh, yeah, it, it is a very grand movie. And uh, I, I would definitely say this is like probably one of like the best movies I've seen, or my favorite movies that I've seen. Um, this is certainly my favorite. This is so far certainly my favorite movie I've seen for this series. Yeah, I think I'd agree. Uh, maybe uh, about with Catch Me If You Can, but because I feel like I because I saw Catch Me If You Can twice, it might mm-hmm. have been worse the second time. I don't know how I would be if I watch it a second. I will I have don't... to say that like. Uh... I don't know how much this affects things, but I was not able to watch this movie a second time, which I have tried to do for as many of these movies as I can. Yeah. Um, it's just, this is a long movie. And yeah, as much as I 
I, I really want to keep trying to watch these movies twice before we see show these because I feel like the first time, like the the first time you watch a movie, is certainly a genuine a genuine opinion. But like, if I like it as much or better the second time, then it's like that that means it's a good movie, and that you know it doesn't mean it's not a good movie if I don't like it as much the second time necessarily. But I did. I I will also say that for what it's worth. I didn't immediately have the urge to watch this movie a second time afterward after I saw it, mm-hmm. but I but unlike Catch Me If You Can, um, which I mean I know I, I I know I like say a lot of bad stuff about Catch Me If You Can, but it was good. Um, but with Catch Me If You Can, after I saw it, I was like, I need a break. I couldn't watch that movie probably for a bit still, and yeah. like I think that that might honestly just have something to do with Scorsese's style versus Spielberg's, like. When I finished watching Catch Me If You Can, I felt like I had just lived through an experience. I'm like, I need to process this for a while. When I finished watching The Aviator, I was like, hell yeah, I have seen this hero's story and like, I should probably see it again. Like, this is a cool thing. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 for me, I would say that I, when I finished watching, it's like I watched his life. You know? Even though it wasn't his life, it was, I guess, half of his life. Yeah. Um, but either way, it was just like, I, I personally found it like exhausting, but in a good way, you know? So it's like not a movie I would jump, leap at to go at again uh, right away, just because I, for movies like that, like sometimes I really love a movie, but I just, I, I don't like to go back to it right away because it's like, I like to let the of the emotions I had the first time just kind of stick, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, but overall, like I definitely, I, I give this like a nine out of 10, I um. I'm going to I, also put it very high. Yeah. Sorry, just what were you saying? Uh, I was just going to say, I, I, I almost want to give it a 10, but just in terms of like the, the lack of, I guess, focus on uh, some, of, some of the love interests, I thought that I still find that a little disappointing. And then also, um, I guess it's just not like a 10 out of 10 is just like, it's a perfect movie, but then also like, I love it, like a favorite, um, just like it's my type of movie, you know, this, this one, I would say like on paper, this is like a, it's very close to yeah. I put this at a at an eight or a nine for sure. I'm gonna say probably like an eight point five out of ten. I think that on this entire in this entire endeavor we're going through, there is a single movie that I can see potentially getting a ten out of ten, mm. and uh, it's not this one. But this is very good. Is it our next movie? What has no? Done? But I am extremely oh. excited for our next movie. And what so, is that movie? Uh, our next movie is The Departed, which, interestingly enough, and I'm not going to tell people right now, I'm going to leave this as a secret, but if people uh, have been listening to our other series, Classic Movies Live, this movie, uh, The Departed, does kind of tie into an episode we did very recently on that, on that show. Uh, be excited for that, because we're definitely going to talk about that. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited to see Scorsese's, once, once again, Scorsese's interpretation on something. I have, I don't think I've been truly disappointed from him and Leo together. And I gotta say, so for a long time, um, right now, I think my favorite, so I guess this is, I probably shouldn't be saying this on a Leonardo DiCaprio podcast, but uh, my favorite, uh, my favorite actor is um, Nicolas Cage. And for a long time, my favorite actor was Jack Black. But that changed when I saw The Departed. And then for until, between when I saw The Departed the first time and very recently, my favorite actor was Mark Wahlberg. So we're going to talk about Mark Wahlberg again one more time in our next episode of Losing It Over Leo, the show about Leonardo DiCaprio, usually. 
Usually. In this case, very much uh, for the past two episodes, Jesse Riley. Obviously. Maybe the next episode. I honestly don't know. Hopefully. You never know. I'm not looking it up, but uh, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll find out next week. See you guys then. See you then.